Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Open Floor Podcast. I'm Ben Golliver. Sharp's not with us today because we're doing a special episode. It's going to be a cover story digest edition of Open Floor. We're going to talk to Lee Jenkins about his big story in this week's issue about the Houston Rockets and specifically Mike D'Antoni, James Harden, Chris Paul, and basically what are they up to as a potential Western Conference Finals showdown with the Gold State Warriors looms here in the not-too-distant future. Uh, check back for our regularly scheduled episode uh, with myself and Andrew. Uh, that will be dropping in your podcast feeds on Friday. Uh, and without further ado, here's my chat with Lee. So I want to start uh, this discussion about your rocket story uh, with the yips, because I don't know if you saw after Game 1, uh, Cleveland-Toronto you know, Dwayne Casey was openly speculating on the podium that maybe his team had the yips. You know, Toronto misses their last 11 shots at regulation. They couldn't get anything to go in. Uh, once again, they kind of freeze up. And that seemed like your entry point for, uh, you know, a Mike D'Antoni story, which was really counterintuitive because here's the coach that says, take any shot, you know, basically any high efficiency shot is a good shot. Doesn't matter if you're pulling up, uh, you know, from three in transition. But he actually, early in his own playing career, had a bad case of the yips, and he basically had to have it coached out of him. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, it's funny. I always feel like the yips are more of a baseball golf thing. Like, I never heard that necessarily about basketball players. Like, maybe it's a free throw line. I guess that's one way to explain why some guys who are otherwise good shooters, right, the free throw line, they're, they're overthinking it. I think maybe some of that, it might have been part of the issue with Markel Fultz, some you know some mental hurdles he had to overcome. Um, but what happened with D'Antoni? So I was doing a Chris Paul story back around New Year's. Somebody with the Rockets. We were just sort of talking about the irony of, of the idea, and I didn't even know this at the time that D'Antoni was a defensive-minded player. That he really didn't didn't score a lot in the NBA. And so I sort of asked him about that, you know, and if he kind of recognized that the irony of himself and. He talked about how he was a good shooter and a good, he really a good scorer when he was at Marshall his first couple of years, and they made this coaching change. And like any player, worries about you know will my playing time be the same? Will this guy view me the same as new coach? And started to press shots, you know, just like I guess a golfer around the green. And his, I mean, I was looking back at his college stats. His numbers did dip a bit in his senior year at Marshall, not by a crazy amount. Um, and then, of course, he was drafted in the second round. He's going to be Tiny Archibald's backup. And you look at when you track his pro career, he got to a point where he was, like, taking three shots a game. And, I mean, he said he was afraid to shoot. Um, you know, he'd even layups. Like, he was blowing layups. So he really did have what he thought was the case of the yips. And it it kind of ran him out of the NBA. He became – He's kind of weird joking that he was like Pat Beverly. He became just this defensive-minded player, even early, even early in his career in Europe. Like this season, these guys from Germany, these like coaches from Germany, came over and they were laughing, saying, "Like I remember, he used to get in a fight every game. Like the D'Antoni was just <laughs> like a poster like in, in Italy. That that's how he was. What he was known for it was like instigating these little brawls and stuff every game." And then in his, gosh, was it his second year over there, I think, a coach named Dan Peterson came over and basically said, just shoot. Just shoot all the time. Focus on takes, not makes. Like, that was sort of their mantra, that just taking the shot, taking, take 12 shots every game. And if you take those shots and don't really think about the makes, that it'll go in. And it's, you know, it's funny. I think anybody who's 
sort of suffer from that. And I don't think it's just pro athletes. I mean, pretty much I think everybody suffers from that. If you do think about just the act of the doing and not the making, like, you know, I mean, I, I remember I, I played high school baseball and I remember kind of struggling with this at times. Like when you're pitching, like there's this idea of just, just think about the act of throwing the pitch and not necessarily the result. And that's sort of what happened to D'Antoni. And this is probably the longest tangent ever, but I think it, it feeds into just sort of his philosophy with players, which is just shoot the ball. You know, when you're open, shoot it. Don't think about it. Don't give it a lot of thought. He didn't want pump fakes and, like, guys driving in off closeouts for, you know, part of it's an analytical reason. He doesn't want them driving into two-point shots, like coming off the line. But there's also a psychological reason. He just wants, I think, their head clear and to get the ball and to put it up because he knows that once – you know, once there are other actions, once you do something else, it allows your mind to start working and your mind is your biggest enemy. I mean, I've had the same conversation with Steph. I think one of the reasons Steph is such a great shooter is there's like a peace in his mind. There's a stillness that he plays with that he really lives with. And when he shoots, because I've kind of tried to press him on like what he thinks about in his shot and, you know, what happens in that moment when he releases. And it is the quest to keep the clearest mind possible. And I think that's something that, you know, even like LeBron, you can tell that that's been a struggle at some points in his career. It's like how to shoot with a clear mind. All the great shooters, I think, are able to project a stillness. And it's probably no different than great pitchers, great putters. Yeah, no question. I mean, Mike Miller's another name that comes to mind. His whole mantra was let it fly, right? I mean, that, that's yeah. distilling this whole uh, idea right down to it. Your contrast with golf and baseball is fascinating because – in those sports, there's sort of nowhere to hide. If you get the yips, you still eventually have to make contact with the ball, and it's going to have to go into the hole, even if it takes you, you know, eight or nine shots. In baseball, you're going to have to throw the, you know, the ball to first base, or the guy's going to be safe. Um, it's pretty obvious. In basketball, though, it's subtle too, right? Like you can have the yips. That doesn't mean you're going to, you know, heave up some crazy-looking shot that's an air ball. You know, it, it can be expressed by, like you're saying, pump fakes, passes. And that can break down a successful offense just as much as the shots that you miss is the shots that you don't take. And I think uh, the natural reaction, I think, from coaches when they have players with uh, you know a, a tendency to not want to shoot or to shrink from the moment is to just take those guys off the court to bury them. Right. I mean, I've definitely seen that happen up close, you know, time after time. And I guess it sounds like they're essentially trying to flip that more traditional idea on its head here. And you got to give his coach credit, you know, decades ago for kind of being a, a visionary, I would say on this, you know, basically flip that idea upside down and say, uh, it doesn't matter uh, whether we lose because you miss, you know, you're basically coming out of the game if you don't take a certain number of shots. Yeah, it is. It is now I think that they have to be a good shooter, right? They have to have the confidence that this guy is a good shooter. He has good shooting mechanics. There's a good shooter in there somewhere and he's just kind of getting clouded. I mean, you wouldn't have just anybody. You know, they're not going to sign Kendrick Perkins and tell him to let it fly. But as far as, like, the guys they have, if they believe you're a good shooter, that's how they evaluate you. If you were a good shooter at some point in your life, I think the feeling then is it's mental. And, yes, part of that is, I think, this idea of takes, not makes. And, I mean, the baseball thing is weird because, I mean, if we're going to – it's like baseball, you have pitchers like John Lester, right, for the Cubs. He can pitch a baseball really well, but he can't make that throw to first base. You know, and I remember, I know, like, I've talked to second baseman who would say, like, on the double play, it's not a big deal. It's so rushed. You're getting that feed from the shortstop. The guy's sliding in on you. He's bearing down. you just got to get rid of it. There's no time to think. 
but on the basic ground ball, the second base, probably the easiest throw in the game, you're going second base to first base or three, there's all this time to think about it. It's something that's expected, right? There's an expectation that this should be the easiest throw there is. And there's something in there that kind of, I don't know, it sort of collapses the wiring. And it's something that I know in baseball they've thought about for a long, long time. And I had never really heard it expressed that much in basketball until this season. Like I heard it a little bit about Fultz um, just from afar. And then, you know, but I, I, going back to like times I talked to LeBron, even after the Dallas series and hearing him sort of talk about, like I asked him once, what do you think about, like, what are you kind of thinking about in those moments? You know, when you've got that little mid range jumper and it's not really working, he said, I think about my teammates faces in the locker room after we lose after I've taken the shot and we've lost. And that's like the Ugh. worst, that's probably the worst thing you could ever think about, right? And so at some point he kind of clearly moved past that. You juxtapose that against somebody like Lillard, who I remember I had this conversation with like a couple of months ago, and it, where it's basically like, I am fine missing. And that was Kobe's whole mantra. The reason he was so good at making those late shots, or at least thought he was so good at making those late shots, was that he was fine missing them, right? It's, it's the piece with the miss. And that goes back to this. That goes back to, like, being okay taking them, um, even if you don't make them. You have to be, I think, okay with failure to some degree. And you're right, that flips on its head, the, like, ethos of, hey, if you don't make it, we're taking you out. It means you didn't want it enough. It means you weren't focused enough. In reality, it's probably the opposite. It's probably that you care a little too much. You press too much. Yeah, no question. That LeBron thing, man, that's something that would give you nightmares to keep you up all night, you know, insomnia if you, if you dwell on the moments and, and feelings like that. Hey, so the fascinating part to me about this philosophy, though, is that while he's applying it to his star guards, like he was the guard back in the day who needed this motivation, he's clearly given James Harden and Chris Paul the ultimate green light to shoot, but then also an offensive structure that really plays to their strengths and is almost like a green on green light if you want to look at it that way. But what he's also done, I think, is instilled this same philosophy basically into every single player in the rotation in one way or another. And you go through a couple of examples, even like Clint Capella, who's obviously not an outside shooter, but right. is clearly uh, empowered by D'Antoni. Uh, but you ha the, the quote that really stuck out to me was Gerald Greed saying, basically, you know, your girl will tell you, uh, you don't ever tell me that you love me. And, and, you know, you respond, well, of course I do. And, you know, the importance of just kind of communicating uh, that love regularly to, to keep guys motivated. I think one of the, you know, stereotypical knocks about Houston, right, is that their role players are sort of ornaments and everyone's just standing around watching Harden and, and standing around and watching yeah. Chris Paul. And I think... Your story really cuts against that narrative pretty hard by saying, look, not only are these guys playing a very important role to get their offensive efficiency basically as high as it can possibly be by being proactive shooters and engaged, um, but they also have found peace with that. And there's, it's not like they're um, an afterthought, even in their coach's mind. Um how much of that really jumped out to you when you were down there talking to these guys? Yeah, to me, I mean, like, so, like with all the floor spacers, it's like interesting because they are ornaments. I mean, I think that's that's completely legitimate. They are, well, they're crucial ornaments, though. It's like so. I think that the idea is they have to sort of it's keeping them okay with being ornamental because a lot of times they don't even want them to move. They don't want them to cut. They don't really want them to feel a part of it as much as they want them they want them to run down every time and stay in that spot and it's sort of a 
it's weird. It's getting them committed to almost to inactivity and be ready for that moment when defense does cheat off them and Harden does find them and they are going to have to make that shot. It's basically a conviction to keep running to that corner and do nothing. And that's what a lot of the guys in Cleveland probably have to do too. And how you kind of keep, you know, how you keep sort of spree de corps in an, in, it, with an, in an atmosphere where you're essentially doing everything to highlight these one or two players, including making other players just stand in one spot for essentially the whole game, I, I think is a trick in and of itself. It's, you're not really rewarding those guys with a whole lot statistically. You're convincing them constantly that by standing out here and doing absolutely nothing, by virtue of everything you've done in the past in your career, like a guy like Anderson, everything he's done, his whole – you know, all the work he's done before with his shot is creating a dynamic where the defense is spread out enough and Harden can go, you know, get all these buckets at the rim and feed Capella for all these lobs. So that's its own, I think, sort of challenge coaching is to keep all those guys invested because they've got like, what, like four or five of them where that is their primary job description is to, you know, defend hard and then on the other end, stand and wait. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I mean, not to go back to another Blazers example, but I remember Mo Harkless earlier this season, he gave a quote, yep. something along the lines of, I'm just out there jogging, you know, three-point line to three-point line. That's my whole job. And uh, that's a red flag when a player says that. I mean, he's clearly not feeling involved and invested. And I think Harkless, you know, wound up turning his season around and, and Portland kind of got, uh, you know, some of their balance maybe, uh, you know, in the second half of that regular season. I'm wondering, though, how much does the personal relationships here, guys like Harden and Chris Paul, might have with these supporting cast members? For example, Trevor Ariza has been doing the same thankless job, like 82 games a year for like three or four years straight. Obviously, Paul's got connections to, you know, P.J. Tucker and Mba Mute and some of their other role players. Yeah. Um, you know, did D'Antoni or, or anyone else, you know, down there in Houston speak to the importance of kind of having those off-court relationships to maybe help keep people invested, too? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that when all that stuff happened with the Clippers and that hallway and Trevor Ariza, nobody sold out Trevor Ariza in that. You know, everybody, it's like Paul and Harden took some arrows in that publicly and Trevor Ariza didn't. And he did, but he probably, you know, they took more probably because they're the bigger names. And when you sort of think about where all those guys are in their careers, would they have all gone for that? early on probably not but at this point you have a lot of veterans who it's it's the time they're getting them more as much as it is who they are and you have other guys too who see themselves i think when you see your identity as being kind of defense first the way tucker wood and bob mute ariza certainly used to be like that then i think you might be able to validate a little more in your own mind right where it's like you're still kind of making your you're making your hay on defense and then you're okay sitting outside and spacing the floor. But it's a, I think it's something that they all are mindful of. I mean, film sessions, they are constantly calling out those guys. Look, by standing out there, I think 30 feet from the rim, look at what we're able to do. By setting all these screens, look at what we're able to do. I mean, they're, I think they're constantly, D'Antoni's phrase was giving them sugar. He's constantly giving all those players sugar to really illustrate in front of the group, not just one-on-one, but in front of James and Chris and the group, this is how this organism works. And if we don't have sort of your history of shooting on the floor in this fixed spot, it's not going to work. And then what's funny to me, and I'm like probably naive about this, is that 
it's the lack of movement that actually is part of what makes them so efficient. And to me, that kind of flies in the face of what I consider like modern basketball wisdom. But they really don't want them moving because they feel like if they're moving a lot, A, they could move themselves into two-point shots, and B, they could clutter up the lane. So really their job description is truly to stay out of the way. And I think kind of keeping a guy feeling like staying out of the way is actually critical is something that takes a ton of work. Yeah, for sure. You had some great details about the film sessions where, you know, a guy's standing in the corner and he his presence allows a dunk and, and D'Antoni is singling all those guys out. You know, anyone who's listening, go back and, and read those details. You will feel like a part of Houston's uh, coaching staff as you're as you're reading <laughs> that. The, the, the thing about... Uh, the lack of movement, it, it starts because Harden's basically unstoppable one-on-one, right? Like there's right, not really right. a good answer for him or Chris Paul is unstoppable one-on-one, especially if they can get a switch. And that's why everybody slows down. And so in your story, you also mentioned, hey, here's how Houston's embraced this ISO stuff. And that uh, it's kind of, again, counterintuitive. It's it's kind of the next wave. Everyone's now trying to play pace and space. So we're going to play a little bit different, really emphasize the spacing aspect, but let our star guys go to work and just pick on your uh, weakest individual defender. It has worked, you know, exceptionally well for Houston. Obviously, you know, uh, franchise record for wins during the regular season, you know, they've played very well in the playoffs. But I think there's still a skepticism that at least I have. And, you know, I've been I voted for Harden MVP both of the last two years, but I have a skepticism, Lee, that this pound, 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 isolation, step back three approach that has worked so well for the last six months, when push comes to shove against Golden State, you're not going to win four games out of seven against them if that is a bulk of your offensive attack. In other words, if Harden's taking 10 step back threes or however many he takes per game um, without getting the ball really hopping and, and moving um, you know, it's going to, you know, basically grind down a little bit. Do you have that skepticism or, or are you a little bit more optimistic than I am? No, I'm skeptical, but I don't, I'm skeptical regardless of really what they do or their system or anything like that. I'm just skeptical that anybody can beat the Warriors or really challenge them. Um, I mean, I, I've been skeptical since, I guess, the day Durant signed. So I don't really know. Do you feel, Ben, like if they, like if they did something different that there's a way that they could somehow beat the Warriors or is it just, is it an impossibility no matter what they do strategically? Yeah, it's really tough because now that steps back and, you know, he played game one uh, this week, he looked phenomenal. I mean, it was a masterful performance by Steph. I mean, 28 points, like 26 minutes, something like that. A huge plus minus their offense was going crazy and they have more offensive weapons than anyone Houston included. I guess my concern is Harden has struggled against the Warriors in the past, and it's usually because uh, you know he's dribbled into tough defenses and committed a lot of turnovers, or he's gotten fatigued and started to settle for maybe slightly lower percentage shots than they would normally hope for. And I guess my concern is, and it's a little bit like the Westbrook thing uh, in the first round against Utah, is like when the going gets tough, like when they're down, when they're really being pressed. Uh, are the superstar players going to sort of revert to, to tendencies that maybe aren't the best? And I think in Harden's case, that will show itself in turnovers and in you know lower shooting numbers. And I'm just concerned mm-hmm. that if so much is happening on the island, I could just see a scenario where Harden, you know, tired, overworked, facing doubles, whatever else, he shoots four for twenty, and you know it's it's ugly. And that's a little bit, I guess, what my concern would be. And that ha- that you know their ISO stuff has been significantly more pronounced, I think, this year than in, in past years. And 
I guess I'm just worried it bogs down that way. No, I, I think there's plenty of cause for that concern. I mean, he just ha- he still has, even with Chris Paul there, he still has very little margin for error. And those shooters are going to have to. It's like, I mean, when I think about it, if they beat the Warriors, where that would kind of rank, even though they're the number one seed and they've been sensational all year, like that would be a monumental upset, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be one of, like in the modern era of sports, I feel like it would be a colossal upset. And it's possible, I guess, I suppose. I suppose they have a puncher's chance at it. Um, and a lot of people might think that's, that's a strange thing to say, that it would be this monumental upset, given that they had a better record and all of that. But I still think for, for Harden to basically, for Harden and Paul to beat them two Hall of Famers against four, um, it would probably take an unreal commitment to keeping those other guys involved, to those other guys that we talked about. Because what you're talking about is that the Warriors will sort of suffocate Harden, right? And if that happens, he's going to have to trust those other guys to make shots. Exactly. And I mean, they can do it. I mean, they've played well against Golden State this season. I guess I'm more concerned that Harden's trust might waver in those moments, right? Because the pressure's on, because, you know, he's worked so hard to get to this thing. It would be a career-defining victory, like you're saying, if he would do it. It would almost certainly mean that they would win the title right around the corner. I mean, the stakes would be gigantic. And I guess that's what my concern is, that they're so reliant upon this one-on-one ISO stuff, and Harden's taking so many shots off the dribble, um, that you know, it could come back to bite them. Ben, would you think real quick though? Would you, where would you think? Would you think that would be like a monumental upset, or do you think it would? People would say, "Oh, well, those were two great teams, and and Houston won." Like, how, how do you think that would be received? It would be shocking because D'Antoni, Chris Paul, James Harden all have the reputations that they can't win the big one, right? So if they win the big one against the best team at full strength now that Steph's back, I think that would be considered a a fairly big upset. At the same time, they've been the top two teams all season long uh, in the NBA. So even if we were to compare it to, say, uh, LeBron in, in 2016, I think that one would be viewed as the bigger uh, you know, the bigger shock uh, in terms of coming back from 3-1, beating the 73-win team and all of that. Um, but, you know, Golden State's had kind of a choppy season. I think that uh, that contributes to this fact, too. I mean, they haven't quite maintained that invincibility, you know, day-to-day all season long. I think some people have just sort of forgotten about them and just assumed that they're going to win all of their games. Uh, and, you know, so I think that they can be beaten. I don't think Golden State's unbeatable. I think Houston's got the best shot in the league to do it. Um, but I do worry that the things that have worked against other teams uh, may not work against Golden State. And the, the stuff that has worked when the pressure hasn't been you know, completely ramped up like it would be in the Western Conference Finals uh, may not work in that situation. Fair enough. So uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about Tony's sort of personality. I mean, you have some great uh, little... Uh, you know, digs at him. I mean, you say he's he plays the bumpkin unconvincingly as ever. I mean, he, he does have this way about him to try to disarm people. Uh, and yet here he's in kind of the process of remaking his career, you know, struggling with the superstars in New York and LA. I mean, either one of those jobs totally made sense when he took them. And he's had this great uh, sort of, you know, third or fourth act here as a coach. And he's one coach of the year and everything else. And yet, you know, he's still kind of trying to get over the hump, win that first title, you know, remake his own reputation. Just where is he uh, sort of in his basketball journey now at this point? I mean, how did he come off to you? I mean, is he just pining for a title? Is the rest just sort of trying to throw people off? I mean, is he just happy? I mean, you got a sense that he was pretty content in a lot of your piece. I mean, 
Uh, what was your takeaway from D'Antoni at this stage of his life? Yeah, I mean, I think that validation obviously comes the easiest form, or not the easiest, but the most obvious is through a title. But I think the validation for him kind of came sort of through the game changing. It came through the Warriors winning, and it came through him getting another job, another chance. Like this idea that basketball kind of, I think he felt as if he was ahead of his time. And then when there was criticism, he buckled from it in Phoenix. And he went away from it. And he started, when others started to question him, his players started to question that system. And then he questioned himself. And I don't know if he thought he'd get another chance after the way L.A. ended. He went to Philly. And it's sort of like as the game, the game kind of changed once he had fallen out of the spotlight, Houston gave him another shot. And I think Houston had always been or has been interesting to him really going back to 2007. And, you know, when you look back at that coaching search, it was kind of interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people thought or wanted them to address their weakness, right, which was defense. And instead they chose to amplify their strength. I mean, so much of what's happened there in this last era has been about how do you absolutely make the most of the superstar, in terms of roster construction, system, hiring of a coach, how a general manager thinks, everything, it seems like, is in line to illuminate James Harden as much as humanly possible. And I think that's a lot of when they hired D'Antoni. They were thinking about a young coach who could really kind of grow with them and be there for a long time, but they went with the veteran coach who could make the most of Harden's prime. They thought about defense, but... Their superstar is offensive-minded, of course, so they went with the best offensive coach they could find. And he's done that with Harden. I mean, he made the one switch where he put him at point guard. I kind of quibble with that because the ball was in his hands a lot when McHale was there also. If I remember right, it was a lot of – I know Pat Beverly was the point guard, but he would run down and stand in the corner a lot on those teams. But he went to it full-time with Harden as the point guard. And then, you know, when he – when Harden wore down last year, he had some flashbacks to those times in Phoenix where Nash was wearing down in the playoffs. And obviously it was a, this was a joint effort from their front office, but I think D'Antoni believes that having that second point guard, being able to play this way for 48 minutes really could like could take Houston to the next level as far as running his system or what he wants to do all the time, running these pick and rolls all the time instead of going back to something more traditional when Harden sits. So, you know, he's been, he's been great for Harden. Harden's been great for him. I asked a lot of guys, why is it that what didn't work with Kobe and Carmelo has worked with Harden and Paul? And the easy answer, I think, there is that they're point guards, and he's always going to be good to his point guards, Kobe and Carmelo obviously being wings. It was a different relationship. Uh, but I think part of it is just that the times have changed. And some of the things that, you know, might have seemed radical about D'Antoni are now accepted. And guys like Harden and Paul have grown into that. And they're also at the point in their careers where they're clearly willing to try. So I think, I think that he, I think he's at peace because the game has sort of accepted him and his place in it is, it doesn't seem so much on the fringe. He's now, he's now seen probably more as a visionary. Yeah, no question. Everybody's caught up to his viewpoint, and I think the league has caught up to Houston's viewpoint, like you're saying, in terms of catering to superstars. So on that uh, on that point, though, you kind of slipped in the fact that Chris Paul had signed papers for his house in Houston. Uh, was did you have a greater meeting with that line? I mean, it sounds no, like is he there long term, or 
those guys move all the time. <laughs> and actually, Chris was already kind of lamenting his commute. So, no, that doesn't – but I do I, – I just can't believe – imagine that they would – that they would break this up. Can you? No, not at all. I mean, it's worked so well. It's worked – I had very high hopes, and it's worked higher than my expectations. And I, I would be surprised if – you know, like Daryl Morey would say something other than that. You know, I'm sure he came in with the highest of expectations. And when you set a franchise record for wins and you're cruising through the playoffs, like that's that's what you do it for. Um, I guess my question, my next question would uh, would be, so if Paul's in the fold going forward and they take care of his contract this summer, my contention has been since at least the fall that like for LeBron, he, the best possible scenario would be an organization that has the structure, stable ownership, uh, you know, good general manager caters to superstars, makes the most out of their players. Uh, you know, understands what it is in the modern NBA to to what you're asking from those guys and and how you can support them. After spending time down there with this group in the middle of the playoff run, can you see LeBron fitting in with them, or is this a situation where it it maybe it makes sense in the fantasy world of podcasts, but in reality, it doesn't seem like quite a nice fit? Yeah, I mean. I- they would have to really break up this whole ecosystem that they have. And there'd be, I think there'd be a lot of risk there. I don't think it would be like Durant kind of sliding into Golden State. I think he would be, I think they, their whole identity really would be at risk and would change if he's there. So I don't know that it's this, like when Durant went to Golden State, it was a given, right? That they would win, that they'll win multiple titles. I don't know. If LeBron went there, do you view that as a, do you view that as a given? Because with the backlash uh, he would take, with the scrutiny he would take, I think it has to be close to a sure thing. And I don't know if I see Houston as a sure thing with LeBron there, given everything they would have to lose. And this whole kind of identity that they've built, that we've talked about you know, for the last 20 minutes would be, I mean, it would be essentially out the door, right? Yeah, and I mean, you'd be asking a lot of sacrifice from Harden just in terms of touches and shots. I mean, I think their ceiling would just be so unbelievably high. I mean, having three guys who can pass as well as those guys, I mean, they'd be like three of the top five passers in the NBA on the same team. Like, that would be ridiculous. And LeBron can shoot uh, from, you know, the three-point line just like Chris can. So I think that would be a a solid fit. It would help with his minutes, but he doesn't seem to really care about that right now. He he seems to be relishing playing 46 minutes in the playoffs. Uh, so maybe he doesn't want the break, you know, the, the San Antonio Spurs style, kind of like slow ramp down late in your career. Maybe that's not motivating him, but that would be one benefit of going to Houston. It's really strange though, Lee, because the first thing you said was, you know, uh, you know, there'd be a lot of compromises with bringing in LeBron. I feel like even a year ago, we would never have started a conversation about LeBron's free agency in that way. And I'm hearing the same things coming out of Philadelphia too. You know, some of their fans are saying, look, like we kind of like our young core. We don't necessarily want LeBron kind of coming in and and sucking up the oxygen and and being sort of the face of this when things are building organically. I'm wondering, do you see that shift uh, in sort of his perception here as as we get to uh, this stage of his career? I mean, obviously he's still the best player in the game. He's turned in insane performances night after night here in the postseason, but it seems like the calculus of LeBron's free agency has maybe changed subtly here in the last year. Well, but you're talking about teams that are on incredible trajectories, teams with 65 wins. I just, I asked a couple people in Houston about it, and there was sort of a like, it was, a, it was sort of a look of, uh, you know, why would we break this up right now? Why would, because they know everything they would have to give up. You know, they know how many moves they would have to make. And, 
would they be able to preserve the same level of shooting, the same level of defense? Like, what would they really? I think there was, and this is people kind of inside the organization. How much of how much would they have to sacrifice of of what they've built as far as just the way they play? Would they have to play? significantly differently and I don't know how it looks like how how many of those shooters they'd have to lose or you know, how much they can fit how much they'd be able to retain of this and then add LeBron James too but no I think you make a good point I think for both of those teams um, I mean the last two teams that LeBron signed with he was kind of going into you know, not necessarily blank slates but pretty close you know Miami's obviously doing something out of nothing and Cleveland was, you know, nobody really, they were not, not necessarily on an upward trajectory um, when he went there. So they, um, this would be different, right? We're talking about teams that are essentially there or will be there very shortly. Um, and so there's going to be, I think more reservations with those kind of clubs than there would have been with Miami in 2010 or, or the Cavs in, in 14. No question. I think LeBron might want to change his mentality here a little bit because competing with a team like Golden State, trying to start with a clean slate is very difficult when they've already got four future Hall of Famers, like you called them, in place, you know, ready to win 60 games every single year here for the next couple of years. I mean, it could require a change in his thinking and his approach um, as well. All right, Lee, I've kept you too long, but thanks so much for breaking down your story. Uh, It's the cover story of this week's uh, SI Magazine, and uh, everybody can check that out online as well. Uh, Lee, I'll talk to you. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it, man. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please send them openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And of course, do not forget to rate and review Open Floor. Help us get those five-star ratings and spread the word. Just go to Apple Podcasts, open that app up, search Open Floor. Scroll down on our page. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. Uh, Until Friday, I'll talk to you guys. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.